This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and editors about politics. It's Thursday, May 9th. I'm Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker. The sleeper hit of Broadway this season, written by and starring Heidi Schreck, addresses head-on the subject consuming everyone in Washington, D.C., and New York for that matter, the powers of the executive branch and Congress. What the Constitution Means to Me has been nominated for two Tony Awards for Best Play and Best Actress in a Leading Role, and its run was just extended to August 24th. One critic, Jesse Green of the New York Times, wrote that the show is one of the things we always say we want theater to be, an act of civic engagement. It restarts an argument many of us forgot we even needed to have. It also, believe it or not, is very funny. Uh, When I was 15 years old, I would travel the country giving speeches about the Constitution at American Legion halls for prize money. This uh, this was a scheme invented by my mom to help me pay for college. I I would travel to big cities like Denver and uh, Fresno. I, uh, I would give a speech, win a whole bunch of money, and then bring it back to put my little safety deposit box for later. I was actually able to pay for my entire college education this way. Thank you. Thank you. It, uh, it was 30 years ago, and it was a state school, but thank you. I visited Heidi Schreck backstage at the Hayes Theater to discuss her show and how Americans' lives continue to be affected by what the Constitution does and does not say about our rights and abuses of power. Hi, Heidi. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me uh, on a day where you're, you should be sort of kicking back and relaxing before your show tonight. Thank you. I'm very excited to to talk with you. So I saw the play last week, and I really haven't been able to stop thinking about it. We, here on the podcast, we talk about political news every week, usually about the grotesque real-life theater, political theater unfolding every day in Washington. But you found such an unlikely way to shed light on the constitutional crisis of the moment. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, I, I didn't intend... When I when I first began writing this play, I didn't intend to shed light on the constitutional crisis of the moment. I because uh, that was some years ago. And it was about ten years ago. I started um, exploring the Constitution in relationship to my own family history. I had done this contest as a teenage girl where I would travel the country giving speeches about the Constitution for prize money, and I thought it would be interesting to go back and tell a personal story in relationship to this document that has really shaped our lives and our country. I never imagined it would become as relevant as it is today. I was really looking at something quite personal and um, and exploring a story that takes place over four generations. It's about as unlikely as a rap musical about Alexander Hamilton. Exactly. <laughs> Indeed. Um, what, as you recall, what did your 15-year-old self love about the Constitution? Uh, I was a very idealistic teenager, like many of us are, and I had um, a real sense of fairness and justice, and I guess I really just, I believed we had the greatest constitution, you know, in the world, and that we had the greatest political system in the world. I grew up uh, with my dad teaching me that, and I believed it was a tool of, of justice. 
One of your fans is the constitutional scholar, Lawrence Tribe. He told The New Yorker's Michael Schulman that you are extremely on target with your constitutional analysis. That must have thrilled you. Uh, it was a relief. Yes, I bet. He singled out your view of the Ninth Amendment, which he says many contemporary scholars don't understand. So maybe you could give us a little riff about your view of the Ninth Amendment. Sure, I would love to. So I became fascinated with the Ninth Amendment um, Actually, as a teenager, and then again when I was older, because it's the most poetic of the amendments. Amendment 9 says, The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Do you know what this means? It means just because a certain right is not listed in the Constitution, it doesn't mean you don't have that right. The fact is, there was no way for the framers to put down every single right we have. I mean, the right to brush your teeth. Yes, you've got it. But how long do we want this document to be? And I remember seizing on this amendment as uh, a 15-year-old and becoming obsessed with this idea that this document was telling me, in essence, that there were rights that I might have... (laughs) that are not listed in this document, are not enumerated in this document. Think about it for a moment. Our Constitution doesn't tell you all the rights that you have because it doesn't know. I, I think I related it to my own sense of, like, what are the things inside of me that I don't, that I don't know about yet? <laughs> and you learned the meaning of the word penumbra. I learned the meaning of the word penumbra. So... Um, uh, Justice William O. Douglas, when he talked about the Ninth Amendment, he, he used this word penumbra. Penumbra is a, a space of sort of half-light, of shadow, uh, talking about how the Ninth Amendment sort of suggests that there might be rights that sort of live there in the shadows that are not articulated by the Constitution. And, of course, one of these rights happened to be the right to privacy, uh, which came to be used uh, in a lot of Supreme Court decisions that were related to women's bodies. Um, So I think for me, (laughs) this idea that um, this document, which so explicitly left women out, which um, didn't include me or my body (laughs) from the beginning, the idea that, um, that this Ninth Amendment made a space where I might find myself where I might exist was was powerful to me, even though I, I don't think I could have articulated that as a 15-year-old. I think that's sort of what I came to understand by making the play. And I think that's one of the things that audiences are clearly responding to, that it just comes from a, such a different perspective from what most people learned in their history classes yes. and everything else, which was, of course, the the male perspective of the yes. founders. Uh, and, you know, you also, you have, you've got a, a longish section in the play about Castle Rock versus Gonzalez yes. and uh, this Supreme Court case that dovetails with your discussion of the 14th Amendment and your family's history. And I thought maybe you could just sketch out that connection sure. for us. I stumbled upon the 14th Amendment a little bit by accident. I, I never had to give a speech about the 14th Amendment uh, when I was a teenager, maybe because it is so dense <laughs> and so enormous. So, I mean, the 14th Amendment was one of the Reconstruction Amendments ratified after the Civil War in order to uh, basically protect the rights of the newly freed slaves. So the 14th Amendment in particular um, 
Part of it is birthright citizenship, so saying that um, any person born on U.S. soil is considered a United States citizen. That was to overturn Dred Scott versus Sanford, which in 1857 declared that no person of African ancestry could ever become an American citizen. It protected their right to vote, and it also guaranteed them and ideally everyone equal protection under the law. Um, and then the third Amendment 14, Section 1, Clause 3 is the Due Process Clause, which, um, you know, guarantees that the government cannot um, seize our property or lock us up or kill us without uh, a fair trial. Uh, so when I decided that the guiding principle of the show was that I was going to take the prompt of the contest seriously and try to draw a personal connection between my own life and the Constitution, uh, which was impossible for me to do at 15 because I didn't know enough about myself or my family or history or the Constitution. When I decided to do that as a, you know, a 40-year-old, I suddenly realized that so many of the things that had deeply affected my life had a relationship to the 14th Amendment. Um, so those things include birth control, they include uh, abortion, Roe v. Wade, uh, and then I have this history of domestic and sexual violence in my family. Um, and so when I began to look at the Supreme Court cases that were related to physical and sexual violence toward women, I realized that um, the 14th Amendment had played a vital role in those cases as well. Um, I also learned while studying it that um, the 14th Amendment was the first time that the word male was explicitly written into the Constitution. So while the 14th Amendment asserted equal protection under the law for everyone, it also made it clear that only male citizens were guaranteed the right to vote. And I get maybe one of the reasons I particularly like this part of the play is because I've been writing a book about three women who fought for years through for abolition and women's rights during the 1800s, in the years leading up to and into the Civil War. And I came across a letter just a couple days before I saw the show from that Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote to Susan B. Anthony in 1866 about the 14th Amendment. They were incensed by the, they knew what the conversation was underway in Congress. And she said, if the word male was inserted into the Constitution, it would take women a century to get it out again. Now, that was a bit of an exaggeration, but it did take, as you say in the play, 54 years. Yes. So they went on, they unsuccessfully petitioned Congress to demand that the 14th Amendment prohibit disenfranchisement on account of sex as well as race. And of course, they failed. Yes, they failed. And as you know, I'm sure what was fascinating about that is that um, there were states where women were enfranchised, where women could vote, and progress was being made <laughs> in terms of women's right to vote. And then that word went in the Constitution, and suddenly um, it felt like everything was moving backwards. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus. You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis with a virus. But somehow that's, that's where we are. Susan Glasser, this week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
You also talk about the 1965 Supreme Court case, Griswold versus Connecticut. Yes. So Estelle Griswold was arrested for dispensing birth control at a clinic in New Haven, and Justice William O. Douglas wrote the majority opinion, drawing on the First and the Ninth Amendments, I now know, uh, to construe a right to privacy between husband and wife. This would make contraception legal for married couples and set a precedent for Roe. In the recording, and maybe you could talk a little bit about this, how you got the idea to play it and what happens. Sure. So I was listening. So first of all, I've listened to hundreds and hundreds of hours of Supreme Court cases. And I decided to listen to Griswold versus Connecticut so that I could educate myself about um, birth control, the right to birth control in this country. And um, the first thing I noticed when I started... (laughs) listening to the cases, how uncomfortable all the men were talking about birth control and about women's bodies and about women's health. Is this uh, true about all of these devices that are covered, uh, that each of them has the uh, potential dual function of acting in a contraceptive capacity and as a prevention of disease, or only with respect to some of them? probably only true with respect to some, but some get by under the term uh, feminine hygiene, and uh, uh, others uh, uh, I I just don't know about, uh, but uh, uh, they are are, uh, all sold in Connecticut uh, drugstores on one theory or another. And, of course, the Supreme Court was nine men at that time. It was 1965. All the lawyers, all the attorneys were men. There were no women's voices in this recording at all. Uh, And I just thought it really brought home for me how ludicrous it was for this decision about women's health, about women's reproduction, about birth control, the fact that it was being made by all by, by nine justices. By who, nine male how justices. How many of whom were having... Well, so we know that William O. Douglas was having an affair with a 22-year-old college student because he later married her. Um, the other three justices, I only can get people to talk to me about off the record. <laughs> and then tell... This also plays into your, uh, your account of negative rights versus positive rights. Yes. Yes. So, um, I mean, one of the things... The biggest revelations for me... Over the course of the last decade, like one of the biggest things I learned was the difference between positive and negative rights, which, again, not a constitutional scholar, didn't know what that meant. Um, So I was trying to understand why in Castle Rock versus Gonzalez, the court decided that Jessica Gonzalez was not entitled to protection from the police. Um, So she had gotten a restraining order against her husband. The state of Colorado required police to arrest a person who had violated a restraining order. She went to the police. They did nothing. Um, Her husband uh, murdered her daughters, and she sued the police department of Castle Rock for failing to protect her and her kids. She won her case, but then uh, the case eventually made its way to the Supreme Court, And the Supreme Court reversed the lower court's decision and said she was not constitutionally entitled to this police protection. And I just couldn't understand this decision. And I finally just ended up talking to a a constitutional scholar named William Areza and just said, can you explain this case to me? 
Most constitutions written in the 20th and 21st centuries have what are called positive rights, which are explicit protections, you know, on the basis of race, on the basis of gender. Most of them have explicit protections, um, environmental protections. Um, so that that's when I learned that our document was primarily a negative rights document, right? It was considered, it was a, a, a neutral document designed to protect us from the tyranny of the possible tyranny of government. And like the idea was you want the government to stay out of your lives. So you so you don't have a lot of things that the government um, must do for its citizens. Um, and it's tricky to have a neutral document that was created by white property owning men for white property owning men to say that that document is neutral, <laughs> it seems to me false. Like that document contains deep assumptions about who holds power in this country. And so if you don't take steps to create positive protections, for example, an equal rights amendment, then then it seems to me that that document will keep drifting toward its original <laughs> Intent, if that makes sense, like which of course it, conservatives think it should. That conservatives do think it should. Yes, and as someone who was left out of it from the beginning, I just, I, I don't believe an originalist viewpoint that says originalism means that we have to stick to somehow the literal uh, <laughs> version of this document that that existed in the beginning. Uh, I just think that is going to always work in favor of the the people who are like the people who made this document. You never utter the word Trump in the show. <laughs> I don't, know, And you don't need to. And so uh, just on my way up here from downtown, yeah. I, I was compulsively checking my phone for the news, as people tend to do these days. And the newest headline is, White House asserts executive privilege over the Mueller report. So for the umpteenth time since the election of 2016, people are again talking about a constitutional crisis. Yes. And the night I was there the, in the audience, there was this palpable sense that a, that a cathartic experience was underway. Right. What does it feel like for you on stage as you relate to your audience's reactions to the play? It changes dramatically every night depending on what is happening that day. For example, I performed the show during the Kavanaugh hearings. Those shows were, the audience was very emotional. There were just audible sounds of grief. Um, strangely, during that time period, people voted to abolish the Constitution a lot, <laughs> maybe because it felt like, for some people, the Supreme Court and the way it operates wasn't working. Although, as you know, you're the referring Supreme to Court's, the scene at the end of the play. I, I, where... Yes, yeah. We debate at the end of the play whether to abolish or keep the Constitution. And during that time period, people were voting to abolish a lot. Uh, the day that, that the AP reported that Trump had said he was going to get rid of birthright citizenship, which, of course, he can't do. Um, that night, the audience broke into applause when I just simply read the birthright citizenship clause. Um, so I don't change the language of the play very much from night to night. And I never really refer to anything that's happening on that day. But the subtext of the play changes every night. And what people are bringing into the play um, changes. So right now, people are always voting to keep the Constitution. And I understand. <laughs> I understand why. You know, the show does offer a warning and a call to action. And I wonder when you're looking back on it, say a year or two from now, what do you hope it will have accomplished? 
Uh, so I don't create things uh, ho- hoping for any particular response from an audience. You know, I don't. I don't want to tell anyone what to think, and I don't have any sort of message to impart. Like, I really made this play because I was grappling with my own family history and with my own relationship to this country and the history of this country and the way it had shaped the lives of the women in my family. Like, that was a very personal thing I was trying to work out. So the fact that it's sort of uh, expanded into this thing that reaches so many people is exciting for me. And I I, I think the only thing I hope for people is that it... um, one gives them solace if they're grappling with something similar and also uh, maybe awakens in them the same questions that I've been grappling with. I, I, I feel, well, and I guess finally that it, it brings people who maybe are suffering through this moment the way m- many people are um, a, a sense of community. I mean, that's been true for me, just like the, the ability to like show up in a room every night and think through what's going on in our country and um, have space to have feelings about it and to grieve about it and to also find ways to to find hope for our future. Um, it, it's made me a, a much happier person than I was two years ago when I was just scrolling through Twitter in despair on my sofa. Thank you so much, Heidi. Break a leg tonight. Thank you so much. Heidi Schreck is a playwright and actor. Her play, What the Constitution Means to Me, is on Broadway until August 24th. This has been The Political Scene. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on newyorker.com. Feel free to rate and review the political scene on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Russell Gillespie. This program is produced by Alex Barron for NewYorker.com with assistance from Kylie Warner. I'm Dorothy Wickenden.